Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you have a terrible culture, you're going to have terrible productivity for the most part, right? You actually need a culture. You need people to feel some degree of autonomy and, and a sense of purpose about what they're doing and, 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 and treated respectfully as a human that we need that. But we also miss out on this like much bigger question, which is kind of like, what are people for? What is human life for? What are we here for? Hey, how are you? Doing well. So happy to be here. Yeah, good, good. It's great to have you on. I'm really excited for this one. It should be a, a really interesting podcast. Like we we met a little while ago. Was it through? Um... I think it was through Lunch Club. I think was it wasn't was that how we met, or did we yeah. meet through a friend? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Lunch Club was a thing, and, it, and we yeah. had an amazing conversation. I was like, this is going to translate perfectly into a podcast. So um, here we are. Cool. So yeah, just to maybe start off with, if you'd like to give a little bit of a background into who you are, what you do, and why. Yeah. So uh, my name is Bob Gower. I'm based in New York City. I'm a consultant. I'm a writer. What I focus on right now is leadership at the team level. So I work with leadership teams and organizations. I also work training new leaders, people who are stepping into team leadership roles for the first time. The reason I do this is not because I'm so good. Um, I think it was William Burroughs said that about poetry. He's like, I'm not, I don't, I don't write poetry because I'm so good, but because everybody else is so bad. And anyway, I don't mean to like throw shade at my colleagues. There's some wonderful leaders out there, but I did see, sense a gap in the sort of the leadership training world, because leadership training often focuses on how to improve your charisma or your like sort of how inspiring you are, or like how to be a better strategist and sort of chess master. And my focus is much more on how do we actually be the leader who recedes and lets the team kind of step forward? So how do I lead in a more collaborative way? And I, because I think what we need now to make the world a better place, to make better organizations is more effective teams. We need more effective collaboration. We need more effective teamwork. And it's uh, it's something I think that is relatively poorly understood because it, it, there's so much emotion involved in it and so much sort of structure involved in it. Uh, and so I felt like I had a unique perspective because of my life history working for bad leaders. I was even a, in a cult for a time. So I have this like sort of like very intense interest in how to lead in a way that's more humane and more honoring of the in, of individual autonomy while at the same time how do we band together to do really important things my other background is i have an mba that focuses on sustainability and sustainable systems and so i'm very interested in sort of the environmental and social performance of for-profit and non-profit but mostly for-profit organizations 
So in respect to your own journey as well, like when we were chatting over Lunch Club, you've all, it's not just a work piece that's that's really interesting as well. It's also that you kind of own individual journey and the travels that you've been on. And I'm interested in how that's also formed some of your thinking as well. Yeah. So, you know, you, it may not be apparent from my voice, but I, but I'm an older man. I'm, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm in late middle age. I'm, I'm kind of first year of gen X and my brother was, was a baby boomer. So I sort of, I felt, always felt like I straddled these two generations. And when I was a young man, I was very interested in philosophy. That was what I studied in university. I became very interested in martial arts and religion and actually traditional craft. I really, I was a furniture maker, a potter, a stonemason for a time, uh, I've worked in factories. I've worked as a taxi driver. I, I was sort of an adventurer. If you, if that, you know, I lived in Japan. I hitchhiked across Laos. I've done a lot of sort of like personal and cultural and global exploration. Uh, a lot of it was sort of you know that young man's trying to find himself, trying to find a bit of you know sort of like romance and and um, and novelty perhaps. But a lot of it also, I think, was me trying to understand my place in the world. And I've always very been been very interested in in kind of moral philosophy. Like, what is it? What does it truly mean to be a good person? And so, you know, you can study that academically, but you can also study that practically. Like, because I think goodness or badness, like, it shows up in relationship. It shows up in our actions and in our world. And so, I've just always been very, very interested in the way other cultures live and. Very and my travels, I guess, would say I've humbled me quite a bit in the sense that you get to see that there are people out there in the world who have one very different access to resources and and sort of education and and even like modernity to a certain degree. Because I've spent I've spent a lot of time in what we might call you know developing nations, um, but that they are every bit as vibrant, moral, and happy often, and even, and as productive as, as we are. And often this sort of like techno utopianism that we sometimes find ourselves in here in the West. I spent a lot of time in, in Silicon Valley. Um, even I was part of the dot-com boom and all of that. And this idea that, you know, technology is the future and it's going to save the world, I think is often, while I think technology is important, I think, you know, we, we have some very, very severe technological problems that need to be solved, especially when it comes to climate and energy and food distribution and those kinds of things. But I also think that there's a way that we can be like what the point of being human is not just that, right? It's not just like making a bunch of money, creating an organization that changes the world or creating a technology that changes the world. But there are these like very, very fundamental human questions and everybody has to answer them for themselves. And a lot of different people, cultures answer them in different ways. And so like, I just remember traveling in India, I was in Varanasi a few years ago and and I was just like very, became very, I was in a bad place in my career. This was about 10 years ago. And I was like, I just became very aware that these were people very happy, you know, or, you know, seemingly very happy and seemingly very present with me who, you know, had a few items they were selling on a blanket by them in the market square. Not that I don't want people to get access to more resources, but I guess I'm just saying that like realizing that my happiness isn't dependent upon my achievement or dependent upon my, my, the accolades that I get, but it's, it's something sort of like deeper and more subtle. And I think I just really always been interested in that. And it's, and it remains, I think very much an, an ongoing question. I'm also like father to a, a teenager now and I'm watching him come of age. And so these questions are like coming back with, with a new poignancy as well. So. 
But you, you touch upon happiness, and that's and that's a really interesting thing to kind of delve into a little bit more detail because when you do the comparison between like the kind of tech world of Silicon Valley versus the traditional communities and the effects on happiness, there's very different parallels between them both. Yeah, I think it's really how to put it. Like there's the, there are these shortcuts that our brains do that I don't think are very healthy. Like, I think I just, like, I, 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 you know, I go to Twitter occasionally. I try to stay away from it because I, 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 I don't like what it does to my mood and my emotions, but, and my clarity of thinking, but, you know, I go through it to kind of check up on headlines. And I noticed the other day that Elon Musk was trending and, you know, like I, I do, I really respect Musk in certain ways. And of course I'm, I, I have like my own critiques of him, but there was this way that it was like, Musk, the richest man in the world does this, right? Like that was kind of the headline. The headline was Elon Musk, parenthesis, the richest man in the world. And then it was something that he did. And the unspoken message in there is that because Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, then he must be doing something right. And he must have now authority over this other thing. And so what I know, what I notice about that, I mentioned that I was in a cult and I, I, I don't, it's not something I talk about. Like I don't talk about the organization specifically in public. It's just not something that I, I'm not, I don't have a vendetta against the organization itself. And my cult experience I think was relatively mild compared to a lot of others. But what I did notice in that cult is what you, you have this emotional resonance with this leader, this charismatic leader. And then you begin to believe that, um, that they, or actually she was a female leader of my organization, that she has access to information in all domains in multi in, in every domain, right? And that to me is the very cultic dynamic. That's when your emotions get very much constrained around a single individual and you believe that they have domain expertise. They can tell you about their your relationships, about making money, about having purpose in the world, about how much sleep to get each night, about how to find a good uh, love and a good partner, right? You begin to kind of go to the same person over and over again. And I think our culture especially American culture and especially technological American culture or capitalist American culture tends to, to do that. Like we almost start looking unconsciously for life lessons to people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, or Steve Jobs, just because they've achieved this level of technical prowess or commercial success. And I, and I don't want to like be that person who has blanket disrespect for these people because I do respect them in certain domains. I think, you know, like I looked at jobs in certain ways. I actually looked at Bezos and even Musk in certain ways to, to have domain expertise, but I don't think I want to be taking like relationship advice or general, like how to be a good person advice from those people, because I think they're frankly, they're, they make some pretty poor decisions when I, you know, like at least externally, when I look at as a distance in a parasocial way, when I look at their lives. And so I just think it's really important that that we be a little bit more self-aware and a little bit more introspective and a little bit more kind of humble when it comes to these things. And then we can also, like, I can go and a pedicab driver in India, I feel like can teach me much more often about what it means to live a life of purpose and a life of, and a life of responsibility and a life of happiness and a life of service than, than say someone who has, you know, beat the stock market in some way, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think also there's that, I think it's specifically in Western economies, there's that desire to align success with wealth and success with power. And there's a bigger question to be asked in respect to the premise of power in a world desiring diversity. Yeah, yeah. I was always really fortunate. So my father, he was older when he had me. So like, 
I have this, we have very long generations in my family. So my father was born in 1925. He's been dead now for about a decade. And he was raised, you know, in the great depression. And my dad was a, he's a very interesting man. I, I, I really still to this day have so much respect for him. And, but one of the things he always sort of like tried to drill into me is that success did not need to be measured financially, even though he came from a generation that very much did that right. Because of the, the great depression, I think was an era when people sort of like, you know, tended to be, you know, like when you, when you have financial insecurity, you tend to look to financial security, you know, you, you tend to like pick your metric. Right. But I think it's really important that we, that we pick our metrics. Well, there's a, there's a philosopher out of, um, I think he's the university of Utah now named CT Nguyen, 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 I'm sorry. It's a Vietnamese name and I'm sure I'm butchering it, but he's a philosopher of gaming. And one of the things that he talks about is sort of gamification and the perils of gamification. And the story he tells is like, there was a couple he knew, an elderly couple who was who had Fitbits and they were counting their steps and they were in competition every day to count their steps. And wasn't this a great thing? But then they go on vacation to Italy and they find themselves skipping the cultural events that they want to go to because they're seated events and instead getting their steps in. And so they're gamifying in some ways a thing which is leading to a lowered life satisfaction while they're on vacation because it's sort of picking the wrong thing. And what Nguyen talks about quite a bit is about Twitter and how it gamifies discourse in a certain way. And where I take that for myself is I take it much broader. Like I certainly want to make money. I'm in my mid fifties now. I'm looking at like, you know, my body might break down. I need some money to retire on. I like my, I live in a very expensive city and I like my lifestyle and, and all of that. So I certainly want to make money, but I do notice, and I know I'm saying anything I think unusual for your audience here, but like when I make money, the metric, it it tends to pervert other things. It tends to, you know, and when, or when I make power or even influence the metric, like I have a, a good friend, not to disparage podcast, people building podcast followings, but I have friends, you know, who've been building podcasts for years and I, and I enjoy, I have, a, I, I'm, I'm not even, a, I, I really can't, don't want to name names because I really adore these people, but there are times when I feel like there's almost like a missing heart to what they're doing because they're looking for viewership because they're, they're, they're hunting audiences. Right. And so they're speaking in very simplistic tones or they're seeking out controversy where controversy doesn't, you know, where, where it does, where it's not needed because they're looking at, you know, how many downloads did this thing get? How many likes did this thing get? And so when we have, when we begin to apply sort of a capitalist structure to things like discourse and attention, I think we run into, we run into some real, we potentially run into some real trouble. And, and I know, I know that I do by the same token. I also know that there are times when I really have to come back and be like, okay, how am I going to earn money now? Like, what is my revenue today? Because it does impact my happiness, right? Because if I'm sitting there distracted about whether or not, you know, my revenue numbers are right. And, and whether I'm meeting my obligations to my wife and my, my child and my community and all of, and, and all the things that I care about that I then, <laughs> that I sort of fall apart in, in, in the other direction. Right. And I, and so what I come back to again and again, I'm sorry to kind of go on this, uh, you, you, your, your question took me in a, took me in a certain, uh, on a certain arc, but what I've been coming back to again and again is recently is actually Aristotle's notion of the virtues. And his idea was that from in virtue ethics, that virtues sit between two extreme, both of which are vices, right? So generosity is good. It's a virtue, but giving all of your money away is probably not the thing is probably not very healthy for you and your family and your, and your life. Whereas giving none of your money away is also not very happy. And so you have to, so you, we have to find our way between these two extremes. And I find myself doing that 
I see my, my, my own life kind of through that lens more and more and more, like how much socializing is too much, how much personal reflection is too much, how much, you know, like all of the, all of the things that I find valuable, I'm always trying to sort of like, I guess, balance those between kind of two vice-like extremes. And I guess when you're talking about balance and, and between two vice-like extremes, it's, it's understandable now in respect to kind of the book that you wrote, like radical realignment, radical alignment, sorry, because like that's what we're trying to get to, right? It's not just about transforming businesses. So they, they, they add, like value isn't in terms of monetary, but value is in, in terms of what value they add to society, but also in life as well. Like what value do we attain from, from this process of, of, of radical alignment? Because if we look at things like the pandemic, if we look at the challenges that came out of the course of the last couple of years, we had a period whereby people were going through this period of turbulence. They had limited control of their own lives. And on the back of that, it led people to have this moment of awakening that I've said in previous podcasts that, you know, it, it caused people to think through the turbulence and through the challenges and, and through sadly some of the losses that people endeavored. It's It caused a moment of radical change individually and, and from a business perspective that I think going forward, it's it's actually going to transform how we see everything. Um, so it does draw me nicely into the book that you wrote and kind <laughs> of the lessons and the highs and lows from that journey. Yeah. So, I mean, just before before we go to the book, and thank you for getting to the book, because I always want people to know about it and 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 get a copy of it if they if if, if they're going to find it valuable. But so I lived in Japan in the in the in the the early 90s. I lived there for several years and one of the, and it was as their economy was crashing and one of the things I noticed was I would have students who uh, I was working mostly with a college population and so as they were getting out of college they were going to go and and become businessmen you know and so they would start cutting their their crazy hair that they had worn in college and put on suits and that you know and I watched this go through, happen several times. And then one year people didn't get hired or they weren't getting hired in the, in the numbers they were. And that was really sort of devastating in terms of the social contract in Japan. But the interesting thing that happened was a lot of those students stayed interesting and they began like opening restaurants and starting bands and becoming more serious about these things that had been hobbies before. But now that the lifetime employment in a, in a, office wasn't available to them. They were like, okay, I need to do something else. And I was like, I actually kind of prefer this Japan to that one, you know, to the other one in some ways. I know there's hardship involved, but I also prefer it. And I had a similar reaction during the pandemic. So my wife and I, uh, again, we live in Brooklyn and the, and my son, by the way, is my stepson. So our plan was always when he graduated from high school, we would return to Portland, Oregon, where my wife is from. And it's a little bit closer to nature. There's good skiing and the, 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 the lifestyle is a little bit cheaper and all of that. But then what we found is that during the pandemic, that so many people were leaving the city. A lot of pe some people were even saying the city was dead. You know, like there was this one guy who wrote an article, like New York is dead forever and it's never coming back. And we kind of like, he was in our larger social group, this guy who wrote this thing. And then, and we were like, we got, we found ourselves like very upset by it. And we were very upset by it because what we really care about is the vibrancy of the community that we live in. And my wife is a painter. She's a curator. Um, many of our friends are artists and we realized, and we felt that the sort of the New York city being in trouble in from a real estate or a commerce perspective actually created this similar opening to what I had witnessed in Japan many years before. 
when the house, you know, now the housing market's different, but the housing market was in trouble for a while. Like the rental market was like really crashing. We're like, well, that opens up opportunity for new thing, you know, new restaurants to open that couldn't have opened before because they, because now you need your capital requirements are lower. And so we've actually made the decision to double down and commit to New York City and never leave. Like we, you know, through the pandemic, we had this kind of awakening, like, oh, wait, we're New Yorkers because this is where our friends are. This is where our community is. And this is what we care about. And sort of, I, I think how that relates to the book, the the impetus for the book, in a nutshell, is that, you know, is that I guess that other people matter, you know, <laughs> and, and it's, it's sort of a, a strange way to say it, or that that is something that I think that there's a Martin Seligman from positive psychology always said, right? That's positive psychology in a nutshell. If you want to live a thriving life, then you, then other people matter. And so the, the, we wrote the book was because we, we had developed a technique for ourselves and some of the work that we did both in our communities, as well as in our professional lives that we felt helped people align more quickly because alignment is a process of emotion and of cognition. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a logical and both a completely illogical process, right? Like if I trust somebody, if I feel aligned to them, there's one way of looking at it. That's this says trust is a combination of an assessment that someone cares about me and that they're competent and can do what they say they're going to do. That if either one of those is missing, then I'm not going to trust them. And so what we found was, what we believe is that there are often these accidental misalignments where people start doing something together, something they both really care about, but maybe they're both doing it for different reasons. One person's doing it for the paycheck and the other person's doing it for career advancement. Like early on in your career, you know, you work 80 hour weeks because you're, you know, but then later in your career, you got kids and you're like, no, I just need the paycheck right now. I still care about the work, but I just need the paycheck right now. And if we don't get clear on those misalignments before we hit them, before they become a problem, we think of them as hidden landmines within the, within the team. Like the team might be going fine. It's going fine. Everything's going fine. Then all of a sudden something happens and things blow apart. And we saw this happen again and again. I do a lot of, again, like I say, training of leaders and team and, and, and team development work. And again and again, I would see like people like yelling at each other and threatening to quit. And I'd be like, wait a minute, you just have this like very minor misagree, you know, misalignment. Sometimes it's even like work styles. One person, you know, likes to work. Actually, my wife and I, we were just planning a, a facilitation we're doing. And she was like, I need to write things down. You need into me. She's like, you need to talk about things in order to get it out. Like, she's like, I can't think about it until I write it down. And so we, we had this like little, after 10 years together, we had this little aha where we just have this like different need in how we process information and how we generate ideas and how we generate information. And that could have easily turned into like this horrible argument, but instead it was like, no, 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 no. Got it. We just, we just figured it out. You write for five minutes, then we'll talk. And now we're good. Right. And then we, and, and we came up with what I think is a great, we're facilitating a, a workshop later on in the week. And, and, and so we came up with a, with a, what I think was a good plan. So the book is essentially meant to like get people to have, we, we would, we've identified kind of the four basic missing conversations that tend to lead to conflict. And we just ask people to have them at the beginning when they still like each other, rather than after they've stumbled over the, the, the landmine and everybody's pissed off and upset and they're, you know, and then it's me, then it's a mediation or a, or a lawyer situation, right? Like, like, let's just have the conversations up front, kind of like you, anyway, kind of like you do with like a prenuptial agreement perhaps as well. So that's the way we think about it. 
And you've also got those things like, is it Myers-Briggs? Myers-Briggs in respect to like people's individual characteristics that form that and how that can kind of build in. But I think that the thing that, you know, to take the conversation a little bit further is it's the fact that I guess people come towards challenge and come towards solutions from different ways. And it's, it's the acknowledgement that there's no rite of passage. There's no perfect way to get there, but ultimately, you know, the coming together, the partnership approach is, is kind of what the world needs at this point in time, because we've had so much separation that um, we do need more minds around the table to figure out what, what, what's next. And it kind of brings me nicely in towards talking about the element of, of diversity, because we, when we initially met, we were discussing about how diversity is a strength, but it also comes with challenges. And I think where we're going to have to go next is a place where it is inclusive of all, but people need to be well aware of the challenges that that comes in order to get to the solutions. Yeah. I, I think one of my biggest sort of, I think, pet peeves in the the conversation, the, 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 sort of the public conversation we have around diversity is one around the the sort of the friction that diversity creates, right? And so some people will say diversity creates friction, and they'll see that as a as a bug in the system. They'll be like, we, you know, we have, you know, like, and I've actually heard, um, and, and again, I won't name him, but there's an academic whose work I, I frankly like a great deal, but who sometimes very much frustrates me when he starts talking about in sort of the let's call it the the culture war, the cancel culture conversation to a certain degree, right? And one of the things he'll say is like. Diversity creates friction. Therefore, if you are from a, a population, a diverse population, which, by the way, I would phrase as traditionally marginalized population, right? So, women, people of color, people with uh, you know different ethnic or sexual orientation, sexual you know gender presentations, and those kinds of things, and intersectional, right? People who sometimes you know have multiples. So he would say that if you if you're one of these people, you're creating friction by coming into these sort of more homogenous teams, and so you should be really nice when you come in, right? So his his admonition is towards the person the the person who who comes from this let's call it diverse background, and my take on it is that's got it exactly wrong in two fundamental ways: one moral and one practical. In the moral way, what we have globally, especially in sort of Western nations or the, you know, Europe, Europe and, 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 the, and the U.S., is we have a world which has been designed by and for, for the most part, people who wear a fairly homogenous identity, white males, right? And that just has left out a whole lot of information. I heard somebody describe it the other day as, as being like, being a woman in, in the U.S. is kind of like, riding a bicycle on, on a road meant for cars, right? Like you can do it, but you have to be aware and not every car is out to get you. Most cars aren't, but one of them is might accidentally clip you and, and you're in trouble, right? Like, you know, the responsibility that I try to take as a, as a, as a middle-aged white man, who is that when I'm working with population, you know, with, with teams that have more diverse representation, I believe all teams should and need it that what I'm trying to do is together, we need to create an environment which, which welcomes everybody. And, and, and so that's sort of the practical or the moral like piece. The other piece is that friction is so essential. It's so important. Like as a matter of like, like having somebody come in to a team and say, Hey, let's look at this problem in this, in a different way. I, you know, like 
the, the, you know, the simple one is, you know, like, um, the, you, you've probably seen the YouTube videos of like, uh, people with different skin tones trying to use motion sensor hand dryers, right? Like they're designed for white skin tones, often not darker skin tones, just because it's, it has to do with the reflective, the reflection of the light. Maybe it'd be a good idea to have a black person on that design team, right? You know, like to kind of look at the problem in a different way or, or consider it more, to consider a different population, you know, I would just like looking at problems in different ways. And yes, looking at things in different ways is going to cause friction in, in the social sciences, we would call this cognitive friction, right? So we create cognitive friction. We create this sort of like disturbance in our cognition, but what we know about creativity, there's a lot of research, a lot of data behind this is that the best ideas, the most disruptive ideas, the most interesting ideas, the most novel solutions tend to come, not when idea A and idea B compete with each other and try to prove who's best, but when idea A and idea B interact with each other, and they, it's sort of like the sand and the, and, the, and the oyster generating the pearl, right? The agitation is what's important. And so I would say that like, while conflict can be challenging, I'm not saying it can't be, the lack of conflict, a lack of conflict is not what we want on teams. It's not what we want if we're trying to do important work. We need conflict. What we need to do is we need to do conflict better. We need to do conflict in a way that actually leads to resolution, that actually where, where people feel heard, where ideas get integrated and absorbed and combined and, and this sort of magical mixture happens. And then we're all like looking at it together and we become. So when I think about my work as a as a team development person or as a facilitator, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take this group of disparate voices and then without dampening an individual voice, how do we get people to come together, work together in ways that are effective and align and move forward together through the friction, not eliminating the friction. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's about ultimately learning to lean into discomfort rather than kind of building narratives that are restricting against it. Because if we look at, let's take some examples. We've had the Black Lives Matter movement. We've got social unrest. We see rise in inequality. We see rise in um, poverty. In the UK, we've got things like the... um, cost of living crisis we also look over in, into terminology as well like terms like woke or i'm, I'm also intrigued by recently in, in america the roe versus wade um piece there's a lot of parallels in respect to like the handmaid's tale parallels so i'd love to dig into this a little bit more yeah so you we, what you're talking you know so first off all of those movements you know well i i can't remember everything you said, but let's just take Black Lives Matter. You know, as an example, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a supporter of Black Lives Matter. I live in a neighborhood that saw a lot of protest marches during uh, the George Floyd, uh, the, the George Floyd summer, let's call it. And actually some of the bigger protests, most of the biggest protests in New York City happened essentially within a few block radius of where I, where I happen to live. I participated in some and, and to my mind, you know, they were all I never, I never saw anything that was not, not peaceful and not, and not encouraging and not exciting. Right. I, I really, you know, I was very energized by the, by, by that movement. So I, one of the lenses through which I see the world is, is as a systems thinker. So I think of, I think of systems, I think of complex systems, and I think of human society as a complex system. And one way you want to fix a comp, you can fix a complex system is you can take a, let's say a structure like the US legal code and then we can begin to change the US legal code and so that happens for good and for bad it's by design slow and probably should be a good friend of mine um, who worked as a political advisor in the white house for a while and was a cia officer for a long time in africa she said to me the other day that you know democracy by design is slow and messy because we're trying to like integrate all this stuff and we definitely need to change our legal codes and i think so big movements like Black Lives Matter, or let's call it, you know, bad changes, in my opinion, like the, the potential repeal of Roe v. Wade, I find very disturbing changes to this sort of like bureaucratic legal code that runs our society. Where I take the, the, the position that I take on it is a, li- is a little bit different, or at least where I've decided to take action, because I think there's this other way, this from when we look at systems theory, there's this idea that trying to design a complex system from scratch never really works very well. Like, you know, like complex systems are full of unintended consequences. You try to change one little thing and, and you end up changing this other thing way over there. You, you try to get rid of all the pests and all of a sudden you, you know, like you find more pests and, and stronger pests growing up or you've killed all the bees and you don't have their pollinators or something. You know, so when you're trying to like change agriculture, which is a complex system or, or nature, which is a complex system, you make changes and you have unintended consequences. So the idea is that rather than start with a large complex system or rather than try to make changes to the large complex system to improve it, by the way, which I think is still important. I'm very glad for my activist friends who are trying to make these changes. But what I, but where I tend to focus my attention is on 
How do we create a small system that works and then evolve that system from there? And I think about that in two ways. One is I work sometimes with startups, very small companies or very small organizations and be like, how can we form the good relational patterns and the good interaction patterns, the good operational patterns as you're young? So as you get older, as you get bigger and more complex and some of these companies, you know, they'll hit these hiring phases where they've got a they'll double in size in a year so that that won't blow your system apart. You'll actually have a healthy system that can then scale properly. The other way I look at it is that in, inside of every organization, there are linchpin groups of people, often the leadership team, but often there are these other teams that are in pockets in the organization, that if they can get their relation, they, they tend to set the pattern for the rest of the org. They tend to be sort of the, you know, it's a fractal relationship, but like some fractals are more equal than others. So like the leadership team, a, a lot of people in organizations are looking to the leadership team for cues about how to behave here, what kind of what kind of behavior is acceptable, what kind of culture is acceptable, how do we share information, how do we collaborate in order to do work together. And what I find is that if I can get the leadership team working well together, often these sort of like intermartinamental squabbles that, you know, in the rest of the organization, these sort of things that look bigger and more complex actually become simpler to resolve because we've kind of fixed this sort of like kernel that sits at the center of everything. And so I don't know where that goes. I'm not a political theorist at all. Like I'm not somebody who I support activists, but I don't see the world in that way. Like I'm not an activist myself necessarily, um, though I support many causes that I care about. But I do believe, you know, like I'm more interested, I guess I'm less interested in fixing what we've got. And I'm more curious about what's next, because I do think that humans, we just haven't figured out how to collaborate at scale. If Twitter is our best, you know, information sharing, <laughs> you know, system that we've got, which I, which it is, right? It's probably the biggest information sharing. Twitter and Facebook are the biggest information sharing, you know, and collaboration technologies that have ever existed and communities that ever existed. They're nightmares, you know, <laughs> like like they don't work very well. So, like, what does work? And so, and I'm so I'm much more interested in like how do you create these small teams, and then how do you connect these small teams together? Because I think just like collaborating like with a million people at scale is impossible. You need to collaborate with just a few people, and then kind of like grow these sort of team of team structures from there. Sorry, I, that was an awful lot of, of information. No, no. That, that's perfect because yeah. you know I, I often talk in respect to the engagements that we we do under the simple premise of start small to grow big. You don't look at things in the wider long-term issue. You actually start with a little bit of action now. And I think in respect to the challenges that we face from, you know, people kind of having squabbles, as you, as you say, within the workplace, this can be kind of countered quite easily by setting the parameters that it's okay to, to um, agreeably disagree, yeah. but actually understand like limitations, understand like, you know, confines of, of build a an area, a safe space that people can actually open up and be honest and truthful about what's taking place. I think looking at some of the uncomfortable truths that we've talked about, these things aren't going to kind of be solved um, for the better of everyone by just burying our heads. But we have to also be truthful to the fact that people in power generally don't give up power very easily. So we have to understand why the, the, the virtues of the human system and you know the fact of maybe it's a shared dissemination of power um, and examinations of our very foundations are, are where, where we should actually start this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love your point about people in power, not giving up power easy. I always crack up a little bit when people, cause you, you know what, I, you probably saw some of the discourse about the, the, the protests during the, the summer of George Floyd here about how, you know, 
it's a, it's an angry mob and all, you know, like there was all this sort of like right-wing sort of like discourse about it. And there were also people, you know, like saying like, well, you can protest, but just don't do it like that. Make sure that no looters are following, you know, the protests or something like that. And by the way, the loot, the people who were like looting storefronts and the people who were protesting were different groups. There were, they, it, it, that's, I think, very clear. There were opportunistic people who saw like the, the public unrest as an opportunity to loot. It was not, no, there was nobody in any protest I ever saw or was ever a part of that was advocating for the destruction of property or looting. That said, there are people that say like, well, don't protest by marching through the streets. Don't protest even or by damaging property or something like that. And then I always have to laugh. I'm like, but when Colin Kaepernick took a knee at the at, in, in his in his football games, you all lost your freaking minds, right? You know, like like there is no protest. Like power does have a have a way of reinforcing itself and protecting itself, and. You know, and I don't think, and I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect that it not. I think that's a natural human tendency. I try to have some, at least some generosity of spirit towards people who are, who are nervous about thing about change. You know, and nervous about change being imposed on them rather than change they choose. Right. I think that's always, that's always a very difficult thing. But at the same time, I think we need to look at we live in a society, we live in a world that. Maybe it's gotten better in the last couple of centuries. I, th- I think there's, you can argue for that, but the, you know, like there's certainly some 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 good you know data points to support that theory. But but it also has its roots in classism, in racism, in treating people as property or 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 close to property in the case of indentured servitude and other things. And much of our modern management, so the way this intersects with my world is I always kind of go back to Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was like kind of the guy who kind of birthed um, management consulting. So he would go into factories, put stopwatches on people and be like, oh, you can do this process, you know, three seconds faster. And that'll, you know, if everybody does that, it'll improve the output by this much. And And for a manufacturing thing, it works fairly well. But when you look at some of the assumptions that sit under Taylor's work, they come directly out of people as property. They come directly out of, out of slavery, right? Because slave plantations were looking at, they also, they also tried to optimize production sometimes. They looked at sort of calorie intake, they, you know, they, they measured out, you know, needed caloric intake. Um, you know, Nazi work camps did very much the same thing, right? This idea of, of like, we're going to treat people as units of labor. And you even see it now in our corporate language. And I don't, I'm not trying to be too dark about this, but like, human resources, like even the language, like human resources, HR, right? Like are humans resources or are they people, right? Like I, I don't know that they can be both, right? Like I do believe that we need to think about efficiency and we need to think about, you know, sort of effectiveness, but how we do it. But if we begin to like reduce people to only value them based on their, their sort of their productive capability, then I think we miss out not only on their productive capability because now everybody's doing knowledge work. And and what we do know is that like, if you have a terrible culture, you're going to have terrible productivity for the most part, right? You actually need a culture. You need people to feel some degree of autonomy and and a sense of purpose about what they're doing and, 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 and treated respectfully as a human that we need that. But we also miss out on this like much bigger question, which is kind of like, what are people for? What is human life for? What are we here for? And I think to me, those are the really interesting questions and commerce and resource distribution and resource acquisition. Those all sit at the base of Maslow's kind of hierarchy, right? Yeah. People need to be fed. People need to be clothed. People need to buy stuff. People need to have stuff. Yeah. I'm not going to, I don't want to take that away of it, but I do think there's this 
other place that we can all sort of get to where we begin to sort of think more about, you know, in, in terms of sort of self-actualization or, or, or shared community self-actualization, community actualization, like who are we as people? Why are we here? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> you know, like all of these sort of like deeper questions that have no clear answer and probably have no definitive answer, but are really where the interesting sort of stuff of life is. And that's why, you know, and I think work can be a part of that, but it it's not it's not it's necessary but not sufficient yeah yeah exactly and i think when you know we we're seeing at the moment in respect to some of the organizations and kind of the thought leaders of the of this current point in time they're kind of they they're gaining a almost like a tribe a, a following a community that's being built out on the fact that people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it and that why they you know akin to Simon Sinek it's very central to towards what is going to take place in the future ahead of us what's next because when we do start thinking about the the ongoing challenges that that we see like uh, the things that I see that are going to be quite pressing I don't think like if you look at like Ukraine and Russia I think that the nobody's really truly looked at the impact of of Ukraine's grain um, mm-hmm. in respect to global food production. So I do, and I, I've also seen the fact that like Russia have kind of harbored back to set areas to almost barricades some of these, the export of, of said grain. So the way that I'm looking at it is the fact that we could actually quite quickly in the midst of a global food crisis, um, and what, what happens there? Well, onward from where largely a lot of the grain that goes from Ukraine goes to the like goes to Africa and Asia. So you'll have a knock-on effect in, in food poverty there. You'll obviously see on, on that people will know they won't be able to remain where, where there's no food. So you'll have to leave. So there's yeah. there's a likelihood of there's going to be a I would probably say like another, you know, a, a movement of people um to like there, there might be a referendum uh, sorry a refugee crisis um and with respect to that it is going to put further burdens onto western systems in respect to how do we cope with um this new influx of people like i think that when you are able to like look more holistically at at some of the the global issues that lie ahead of us then we are we can become more proactive to to solutions rather than like uh, one of the biggest travesties in the uk that i see at the moment is is that rwanda scheme which is absolutely appalling um where people are are fleeing areas like ukraine to seek asylum like legal asylum in the uk and um we're, we're creating laws and legislation that means that as soon as they touch that even sometimes they don't even need to get here it's like as they're making their way to the uk they, they, you know, there's discussions about the government trying to like put them on planes and fly them to Rwanda. It's absolutely barbaric, and I, and I think you know, in respect to you, you talked at the very beginning about Aristotle, and it's the role I think now, like we we are at the, that change moment. It's there's there's very few throughout the dawn of history where there's these huge seismic changes, and you know, things that pop to mind is like things like the Great Depression or the financial crash. These are big moments in time that we're in at this present point in time. And it's a great moment for civilizations to really change 
for the benefit of people rather than process. And if we're going to look at that, we have to really uh, do a deep dive into morality, ethics, and goodness and figure out actually what do we want to be as a, as a human race going forward? Do we want to be something that is consistently perpetuating that narrative of us versus them, of the rich versus the poor, of the, of the haves versus the have nots? Are we going to kind of create a, a global environment whereby you know, everybody has the opportunity to prosper. And, and I, I think, I hope, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. I do hope that the, the latter is where we're, where we're going to head, but it will take time because, you know, to, to get to that point in time, to get to that like shared paradigm, that, that paradigm shift from an economic model to also the um, dissemination of power. Well, it takes more, it takes more conflict. It takes more uncomfortable truths and it takes more people to kind of stand up and realize that actually, this current method, this current model is not really what I want to do. I don't want to, it's not something that I want to retire into. It's not something I want my children to grow up within. So I like the onus is on me to make that change. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up so many good points. I, I, um, and you know, like it feels like we're entering a recession right now. I mean, all the indicators seem to be that we're entering a recession and, and, you know, some of the layoffs have already started, uh, here in the States. And I've been through this before, you know, like I, I was, I went through the, the dot com. Um, when I got out of college, it was sort of the, the, the late eighties, which was also its own sort of troublesome time in the States. And then of course, 2008 crisis, I was right, kind of right in the middle of as well. I was actually changing careers and changing jobs at that time. And so it was really challenging. So been 13 years since we've had a global recession, they tend to happen on seven year cycles. So we're, we're way overdue and this one may be extreme. And so I think about that a lot. And, 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 and of course, I also think about like the refugee crisis and, and water and global and climate change and sort of all the things that are sort of like potentially coming and, you know, and whether or not we're headed towards collapse or something like that, right? Like, like actual sort of like really severe restructuring. There was a, there's something I, a a story I revisited a a little while ago. Um, Are you familiar with Lord Franklin? Do you know who Lord Franklin was and his story? So Lord Franklin was, he was uh, 18th century or I'm sorry, 19th century explorer. He did a lot of like polar exploration. And and so he um, was tasked with finding the Northwest, Northwest passage. So he left, um, I think in the 1816, something like that, he left the UK trying to find the Northwest, North, Northwest passage, you know, across Canada or, you know, through the, through the Arctic, essentially. It was a three-year expedition, most technologically advanced ships of the time, and basically disappeared without a trace. It was three. He was, it was an expedition of three ships. The reason I bring this up is it's they they've now discovered that a lot of like ter- kind of terrible stuff went down. They found the ships. They've you know they've excavated. They've they've sort of found and and also there's some questions about like how the crew was behaving towards each other in terms of you know like violence and 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 kind of anyway terrible stories near the end. So I watched this really wonderful dramatization of it on uh, the American movie channel on AMC called The Terror, which is the name of one of his ships. And it was really, it's a really beautifully shot and beautifully done show. And one of the things it shows is sort of the complexity of the humans who were on, you know, like it certainly shows the heart, the bad things that like the, the, like the, how humans behave, could behave towards themselves. And certainly some people were terrible and there was attempted, a, a, it, this was all fantasy by the way, but it was an attempt at a, you know, at a coup and, and those kinds of things. But there were also people who were, who like kind of came back to their own, they refused to let their own sort of sense of morality down. And even though they knew they were doomed at some point, they still remained kind of who they were. They, they thought of themselves, uh, they, they, and they, they tried to behave in a way that they could respect in themselves. 
And why the reason I find this just inspiring is that like when we begin to face hard times, I think as a as humans, it's very natural for us to have some degree of expediency or to let go of certain sort of societal restrictions that have held us back and, and be becoming, we, we begin be behaving in potentially asocial ways. But I, I also believe that humans are capable of really, they're capable of sacrifice, they're capable of really good, of doing really good things. You know, Viktor Frankl pointed this out in Man's Search for Meaning, that even in I was a about to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're talking about Frankl here, right? Like, even in a concentration camp, you can be free. Even in a concentration camp, you can be, you can be a moral human. And to my mind, like, while I take Maslow's hierarchy seriously, that like you have to meet base needs in order to kind of get to the higher sort of more spiritual or intellectual needs, I do also believe that even when you are at threat, you know, from a, from a sort of a financial or, you know, perspective, you, you still do have some choice. You do, you know, you do still have some agency. And part of what I try to cultivate in myself is that resiliency and also just recognize that, look, my life, you know, like I'm, I'm going to turn 57 in a, in a couple of weeks. And, and, you know, like I, 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 I feel like I can, I can look, I can look back easier than I can look forward. Looking back is, has more years to it than looking forward does. There are fewer years left in my life, statistically speaking, than, than there, than I've lived so far. And so, and as I reckon with that, and also, you know, like I think about, I don't particularly believe in an afterlife. I'm not particularly religious in any way. And so like, I believe like this, this is me and this is it. And so not only is there a community benefit or a sort of a, a um, like a, a benefit where we can look at a, at, at some kind of imperative, you know, in a deontological way, like this is what we should, you know, you shouldn't lie or you shouldn't do, you know, like these sort of imperatives that we should or shouldn't do. There's also this kind of inherent pleasure or joy that comes from living and being a and, and doing your best to be a good person, no matter the circumstances that you find yourself in. And I know that everybody is not in a place to be capable of that. Everybody's not, you know, like we're all in different places of development and, and different places of, of capability. But I do think it's something that it's something important to me that I hold myself to these standards sort of as as I as I and not give into the fear, not give into the to the to the concern and the worry. Yeah, exactly. Not giving into the fear and the worry is an important thing because I, I guess for some um, that are maybe you know it's it's in both of our professional lives we've we've always been embedded into change, be that organisational transformational change or cultural change that we've done, like our audits or business reviews or whatever it may be. It's always centered around the premise of change, so we're kind of like used to it, right? We're used to the ebbs and flows of it. Um, and the tidal effect that it kind of, it's not lasting. Things flow in and flow out as well. But I think to some, it can be quite overwhelming because some people may think, well, Jesus, what what the hell can I do? But the main thing is in respect to the, the times that we're in at the moment is to realize that you can do a lot. Mm-hmm. You individually can opt to live a life that is beneficial for you and, and a life of value and a, and a life ultimately centered around happiness if you opt to choose to help others and in order to help yourself as well. So when you go forward, you know, you can take a lot of motivations by the fact that you can support other people. You can help their growth journeys, you can, which can also help your own, like challenge your own mindsets and, and think about new ways of living. And there's, there's loads to it. When you go on that growth journey, it's very invigorating because 
you know, you're no longer fixed. You can be whoever the heck you want to be and nothing becomes impossible. Everything becomes possible. But the crux to what I'm I'm saying in, in total is the future in itself, it, it kind of reminds me of that famous Gandhi quote, like the future depends on what we do in the present. Like our future ahead of us is, in my view, is unbelievably positive, but there are challenges. There are these kind of roadblocks ahead that we need to um, circumnavigate and, and in a lot of the ways solve in order to for us to get to that amazing kind of promised land that I, I see down the road. But ultimately it, it's, it's deciding and it's, it's, it's acting and it's doing and it's, and it's changing at this point in time in the present to allow us to get to that, that future for where, where it's beneficial for us all. Um, and if we don't kind of get to that point, if we don't kind of opt for that change moment, then it's, um, it's going to be more difficult because, you know, you see globally the rise of like, um, I don't know if you know anything about like Timothy Schneider's work on sadopopulism, but you know, globally, we, we see a lot of sadopopulist leading countries at the moment and, and kind of, this this kind of what what happens is respect to not only economies stagnate but people lives um there's there's huge detrimental effects by just allowing a perpetuation of um almost a status quo so yeah the the world that i see is is very much is is very much a, a promised land ahead of us but we we do have to kind of take our moments take our time in the present in order to build out the future that we all want yeah yeah just just one i one quick story that that you jogged for me. Are you familiar with Doug Rushkoff's work? Do you know Douglas mm-hmm. Rushkoff? Okay, he's he's kind of a, a sort of a futurist. He teaches at a local university here in New York, and he's written a few books um, on a variety of things. But one piece he wrote a little while ago, he get, because he's a futurist and you know kind of thinks about like where the world is going a lot. He gets invited to speak, and he describes getting invited to speak to a group of a, a very small group of very wealthy people. And their their essential question was, what technologies will help us survive the the crash? Because they were all sure a crash was coming, and a lot of their work, their a lot of their thinking was around like, how do I hold on to my stuff? How do I ensure loyalty of my security forces, my private security forces? How do I secure my compound so my stuff and stays safe and all of this stuff? Um, and they were even like talking about putting things, you know, like crazy ideas, like putting like collars on people that could, that have a, uh, you know, like could be blocked and, 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 you know, you know, like running man or whatever, like blown up or whatever, you know, like really dystopian kind of crazy stuff. And Rush got Doug is, he's a very sweet guy. Uh, and, 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 and he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> he's like, how about you just treat these people fairly and build a community with them? And then you would depend upon these sort of like ties with each other to in order to survive together rather than how you can control and i think to my to my mind no story i think encapsulates in many ways the modern dilemma that we face than that right and it and because to my mind and, and this is what my work my work is all about people help helping people collaborate in ways so they can create the outcomes they want together and collaborate on a sort of a cultural emotional individual interpersonal level as well as on sort of an efficient operational technical level with i lay more weight on the emotional stuff than i do on the technical stuff but both are important and and to my mind i guess that's the thing that i always kind of come back and going back coming back to like even my story about deciding to stay in new york city like one i believe in new york city's infrastructure i think it's you know it's messy but it works and it's and it's shown that to be resilient and two, this is just where the people I love are. This is where the people that I care about are. And to my mind, like, there's very little that's more important to ask yourself than that, right? Like, 
who are my people? Who do I care about? Who do I love? Who am I willing to support? How am I willing to support them? And, you know, I guess I'll just say this. If you're making those decisions based upon sort of traditional class, race, gender lines or whatever, then you're probably missing the point, right? You know, like our world is much more interconnected than ever before. I live in a predominantly black neighborhood in New York City. Like I want to integrate even, I, and I don't feel I do a very good job, but I want to integrate more and more and more into this community than, 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 I, than I have and more and more into, 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 the, into the world around me. And to me, like, that's like, that's half the battle, right? Like that's, that's what being human's all about, right? Like, like that's where the joy is, right? Like nothing fun happens without other people around you, generally speaking. So like cultivate that stuff. I think that's that's the perfect takeaway, right? The perfect takeaway is the fact that um, in any form of change, in any form of like growth development in anybody's life, the the crux of of the change comes down to who do you love, who do you care about, and and why is it important? And if if we also look at everything in the confines of that, then we will shift away from a societies that have been largely embedded into control and shift more towards community because that's like if you read um, Sebastian Junger's book on on tribe that is where we are right that's what we're looking to do again we figured out that what what was happening before clearly didn't work for everybody because ultimately like the, the what happened with the pandemic but beyond that who do we love who do we care about and and what can we do to kind of harbor our communities our tribes to make sure that we we kind of can insulate ourselves for future turbulence that's going to appear i love that it's it's people and relationships all the way down right thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure it's been a joy thanks so much for having me on thank you for listening to the purpose made podcast Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 